We're going to be back in our in our study of Galatians today. We we went through and reviewed those first three chapters last week to kind of put us back in a place that we would have it fresh in our mind. And as we did that, as we reviewed Paul's letter last week, we were kind of able to establish a definition, a working definition of the gospel um, that we can that we can kind of hold on to and kind of hang our hats on. The gospel, this is it, and this is what we've learned as we've worked our way through the, through the book of Galatians. The gospel is the good news that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are found in Christ, redeemed from the curse, and made sons of God and heirs of the promise. I mean, when you begin to think about it, there's any number of ways that we could answer the question, what is the gospel? But eventually it always comes back to one central theme. And I think that central theme is what Paul has really been pushing or demonstrating or, 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 or arguing for in the letter to the Galatians. And that is that we are found in Christ. That, or I'm sorry, that being found in Christ, we are justified. And what that means simply is this. That God looks at you and instead of recognizing you as a sinner, which we are in our nature... He says you're innocent. He justifies you. He judges you to be innocent. That's a huge thing. That's a big deal. But it's not by any work that we could do. We could never earn this. We will never deserve this. There is nothing that we have that we can present to God. It's not like we can stand before him and bribe him for our acceptance. God, I've got a 401k and I'll let you have it if you'll save me. It doesn't work. It's not going to happen. This is all built upon the work of Jesus Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection. He, Jesus died in our place for our sin. And as we've heard in Galatians, some verses that kind of represent that to us in, in the very opening, uh, in the very introduction of the letter, Paul says that Jesus gave his life in order that in order that we might be delivered from this present evil age. Then in chapter 3, he says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. In Jesus Christ, we are able to stand before God as innocent, as, as forgiven, as saved, as one who is redeemed. Redeemed from a curse. A curse of, of wrath, a curse of, of misery, a curse of separation, eternal separation from God. And this was Paul's primary argument or the primary point he was pushing or, or trying to present in basically most of Galatians chapter 3. He wanted these Galatians to see, he, he wanted them to understand that the lie that they had been told by these, by these Judaizers was just that. It's a lie. And that, that, that to believe in it, to believe that there was some work that must be done in order to be accepted in Christ, is really just buying into a whole other law, a whole other idea about what we must do to work for our goodness. But the law, or the, I'm sorry, but the law, not the law, I'm sorry, but the gospel, let me say this right, but the gospel is not simply a, a, a it's not simply a judicial act. It's not simply just some, some legal transaction. There's more to it than that. Yeah, yeah in, in a way, it is us standing before God and Him, our judge, saying you are innocent based upon the work of Jesus Christ. There is, there's a sense of a legal transaction. 
But if that's all we ever recognize it to be, we will never, never experience it at its core and it's at its depth. Because in, in a legal transaction, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a court of law, we stand and we're simply ex- experiencing or responding to the physical consequences of bad decisions. I mean, you don't go to jail because you're simply a bad person. You go to jail because you break the law. It's, a, it's usually a physical outward exercise, and then you deal with the physical outward consequences. And so in God saying you're innocent, in many cases we don't recognize the depth of that. We begin to think of it in external senses, in an external way. For example, I'm innocent of adulteries committed even before I was married. I'm, I'm innocent of, of, of the sins of my life. I'm, I'm innocent of many of, of the idiot, stupid things I've done. I, I, I'm innocent of, of the, the lust and, and of the desires for this world. I'm innocent for all of these decisions that work themselves out physically and in a, in a, in a, 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 a way that's outside of me. But the gospel is so much more than that. It's not just a legal transaction. You see, the gospel gets to the root of who we are. The gospel's not just about a, a, a change in status in our legal standing. It's a change in who we are at the very core of our existence. It's a change in our identity. Identity, it's pretty important to us. Identity, whether we think about it, in fact, probably most of us don't wake up in the morning and think, okay, who am I going to be today? We, we probably don't cognitively recognize decisions we make based on our identity. Our identity is, is extremely important to us. I mean, even, even our identity that's on paper. I mean, consider this. We have a whole new industry or, or service that's provided and a new style of business has been developed because in our technologically advanced world, our identity is at stake. Did you know that, uh, that on an average, annually, there's 15 million Americans that suffer from a fraudulent use of their identity? The, the, the losses total somewhere around $50 billion every year. That's an annual average. And so there's businesses that have cropped up to help protect your identity. And a lot of people spend money on that because their identity is so valuable to them. My wife and I, in fact, this is the last year, we, uh, we had our debit card information somehow. I mean, we had our cards, but somehow somebody else got the information and they began to spend money that we didn't really have to spend out of our bank account. And thankfully, the bank caught it and they were able to reimburse the money and it didn't cause any problems in, in our accounts. It didn't cause any problem in, our, in, in, in other people's money that we owe them as we paid bills. None of that became an issue. But the reality is identity theft, man, it can, it can really devastate some people's lives. The, the credit problems it causes and, and the things to, to deal with can be devastating. But we try to protect it because it's important to us. And not just our identity on paper. I mean, consider who you want people to believe you are. Are you going to act different today at church because your identity is important to you than you would sitting at home with your buds watching football or sitting at coffee with the ladies 
I mean, are you going to put on a face that, that presents you as one person to this group of people and then go home and, and really just unload and take off that mask and let your real identity show? You see, we want people to believe something about us. Our identity, how people perceive us, that's important to us. A lot of people, some people, it's, it's much more important to, to them than, than others. But the reality is, is, honestly, it's a huge struggle we face in, in our churches today that we have inauthentic people leaving, le- leading inauthentic lives. But it's because their identity, they, they want so desperately to be known a certain way, they don't want people to recognize who they really are. And beyond just how people perceive us and beyond how how, how our, te- our, our identity works itself out in the, in, in the technological world, the truth is that every problem we have, every issue we face in this life, everyone is a result of an identity crisis. Let me say it again. Every issue we face, every problem we have is a result of an identity crisis. You see, the reality is, and we can't see this from our small perspective, from our limited, finite view. It's almost as if we're standing in a valley and looking out, trying to see past the mountains. We can't see it. But the truth is that as we step into the pages of Scripture, it gives us a perspective that lets us see beyond the horizon. And we can gain a perspective and understand that truly our issues start with a mistaken identity. And this problem seemingly becomes insurmountable and unmanageable. The truth is that because we don't really know who we are, we don't know how we should live, we, we, we don't know what we should devote ourselves to, we don't know what we should do next. I mean, consider this. The, I, I did some research, and I found that, that the um, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, they say that, it, it, that adopted children really grow up to be persons really like anybody else, and, and that, um, that really they're, they're going to lead a life that's not much different, but it's going to be unique in that some of the experiences they face are going to be different than other children. And it's all driven from this idea of identity. And I talked with Chris in, about this this morning. Chris and Genesis are adopting a son from Ethiopia. And I asked him, I said, you know, I, I read about this, and I'm just curious. Have you guys had to go through classes to deal with these issues and to think about these issues? Because as their son, as they've adopted him from Ethiopia, he's obviously going to be different than they are. I mean, he's going to look different. And that's Okay. But the reality is, it's going to cause questions in his mind as he grows up. And one of the questions that Chris actually brought up this morning is that one thing that they see in children that are adopted, that, that are uh, dark-skinned by, by light-skinned people, is, is my skin going to change colors as I get older? Most of us don't even think like that. But they struggle with these issues because they don't understand their identity. In fact, they say that while they, while they eventually, ultimately lead normal lives, some of the problems that they face is a higher probability of self-esteem issues, a, a, an 
having no understanding of what their medical history or their family history is, what they can expect to, to deal with because it's in their genes. A sense of isolation because they feel like they're all alone. Nobody understands them. It doesn't matter so much. It's not that, it's not that this is a bad thing. Don't, don't hear me saying adoption is a bad thing. If you want to adopt, you go adopt and you do everything you can to demonstrate the love that you have for that child. Go do it. But it's certainly something that adoptive parents have to be aware of. You guys had to go to a class about it. You, I mean, it was something that they talked about. Because people recognize that identity is important. And the truth is, is that this is what we see in our spiritual lives. We've lost sight of where our identity is founded. We don't know our identity. And so we live in a world that's crippled by an identity crisis. And honestly, as Paul begins to kind of bear this out, I mean, this is what Paul's driving towards next. He's, he's demonstrated that in Christ, we are found innocent through faith. We are justified in Christ by faith but it goes deeper it moves beyond that which is seemingly outside to that which is inside and i think that's what we're going to see bear out in the pages of scripture today if you've got your bibles we're going to be in galatians we're going to pick it up actually in galatians chapter 3 whoever broke this up everybody i read from i mean this is not just me saying this but just about everybody i read from and listen to they say hey the guys that put the chapters and verses, and when they broke the chapter here, they screwed it up. They missed the point. They missed it. Um, and so we've really got to pick up in chapter 3 to be able to get the context and understanding of what Paul is driving for. In fact, I put on the, on the screen, you're going to have verses 28. I'm going to step back to verse 23 so that you can really hear the context because it's absolutely imperative that we see this. So I'm going to start reading verse 23. You guys can catch up with me on the screen on verse 28 here in just a minute. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified through or by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You see, you have been freed. This is, this is what faith has done. It's, it's removed us. It's redeemed us from the curse of the law, and it's freed us from this guardian. For in Christ Jesus, he says, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith. And immediately, this is the first place he begins to introduce it. There's a new identity introduced. You've stepped out from underneath this guardian and you are made a son of God. Ladies, don't think that leaves you out. You, you are a son of God. I know it feels a little weird, but it's the truth. It's who we are. For as many of you, this is verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. Being found in Christ is being saved, is being redeemed, is being justified. Being found in Christ is to be a son of God. Now here's where we're going to pick up and really begin to build our, to build the text and the, and the message today. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. <clears throat> for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. And let's just stop right there for just a second and let's deal with this. It's unfortunate, I think, that this verse, this verse, this powerfully deep verse, this special verse has been so twisted and misconstrued in our culture. 
See, Paul is not commenting on role or function. This whole passage, when you put it in context, this whole passage is pointing to our new identity. And when Paul is talking, he's not talking about a role or a function or a way that a person lives or even necessarily distinctions in role or function, but he's talking about identity. And it's unfortunate that apart from its context, being pulled out completely of its context, to stand alone, which this verse can't do, no verse really can do. It's been twisted and distorted so that we can live in unbiblical ways. Some of those just churches accepting women as elders. Man, I know it sounds good, and I know that in our culture it's harsh to think that that, that, that in some way a woman may not be able to lead as an elder in the church, but it's not our rule. I didn't make that up. And this passage, when it's put back in its context, does not undermine or override the other passages from 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians and 1 Timothy that speak to to eldership being a male role. It's not my rule, it's not my it's it's not my decision. I'm simply submitting myself to the authority of Scripture. It's not my decision that homosexuality, while we can love gay people, and while we should strive to see gay people redeemed, we can't affirm or say that homosexuality is okay. It is a sin. It's a difficult thing in our culture, and I know this personally because I have family members who are gay and who live in this lifestyle and who demand to be accepted in this lifestyle. I I know that it's a difficult thing. But this passage is not removing role or function or distinction. It's speaking to our new identity. And let's just work our way through it. He says that there's neither Jew nor Greek. And what he's saying, in Christ, race and religion have no advantage. There's no advantage. In in his day, when he's writing to these people, Paul is talking to a people who have been influenced by Jewish people. Now, in the church of Galatia, there's Jews and there's Greeks. And then along comes these Judaizers who have this law and who say that you have to follow these rules. And they come and they say, you you heard about Jesus, that's great. But really, to be found innocent, you have to tack on these things, this Jewish law, this Jewish rule. You see, these people, they thought so highly of their religion that they demanded that everyone else follow it. In fact, you can see that today. There's, a, there's, there's some people that in, even in the taking of communion, something that should be very special, that, that should be a celebration of what Jesus Christ has done, and, and as, a, as a representation of who he is, there's, there's some traditions that would say that this in some way is salvific or that it brings God's grace upon you. And then they say, if you don't believe like us, then you're less Christian than we are. You don't have the whole truth. You see, they're tied to their religion. They're they're, they're believing and trusting in their religion and their tradition. And the Jewish people, of course, they also trusted in their race. You know, I mean, it was their lineage. It was their history. It was their fathers and their their grandfathers and their great-great-grandfathers. And they could trace their life back and they could trace their lineage back. And they could see the mighty and powerful works of God. 
And they could see that they extended from a man who had heard God speak and who had been promised by God directly, through you I will bless all the nations. That's our father, they say. That's where we come from. We must be superior. And see, Paul is really saying that in Christ, race and religion provide no advantage. You don't have a higher place. You don't, it's not like you step into faith and because you have the right race or the right religion that you take a few steps up and that you can still look down on those who are less than you. There's no advantage. Then he says, not only is it about race and religion, but there's no, in Christ, social status it brings no advantage. There's neither slave nor free. It's not better to be one or the other. You're not more saved if you're free than if you're a slave. I mean, consider this in our, in, in our culture. You know, we, 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 we live in a world where we exalt rich people and we long to be rich people in many cases. We want to be part of that upper class and there's many people, even good Christian people, who give their existence to being a part of this upper class. And maybe you're sitting here, maybe you're thinking, well, you know, it's not really a big deal. I don't, I don't honor rich people. I'm not striving to be a rich person. Maybe that's not you. I can remember, though, I, I'll never forget this. I was sitting in a church. I was sitting in a church, and this semi is a Branson celebrity. So it was, I don't know that you could really call him a celebrity. But this Branson celebrity, you, know, you guys know Branson, Missouri, walks into the church during the opening of the message, during the opening of the service. And the pastor actually called this guy out and asked us to welcome him. They didn't call me out and welcome me. And they didn't do it for anybody else. They did it for him. Because whether we like to admit it or not, our culture honors people of status. And just in case you think that's not you, I'm going to give you two options. I'm going to ask you to come with me, and I'm going to give you two options. And I'm going to drive you to the south side of town, and I'm going to drop you off, and I'm going to let you drive or walk at night through Rivercut, the, the golf course, and the housing neighborhood down there. And I'm going to ask you how you felt after that. And then we're going to get in the car, and then we're going to drive up to the north side of town, I'm going to drop you off in a neighborhood where the houses are run down and they look beat up and I'm going to ask you to get out and walk through that neighborhood at night. Tell me you don't think that you're going to have a different reaction. You see, statistically, we might have reason to, to feel a little different in one neighborhood than the other, but I'm telling you, I think this proves my point. That even in the best of us, even in the best of us, our culture, this is where we're at. Paul says, in Christ, social standing has no advantage. You can't buy your way into a brighter heaven. And you can't be so poor that you can't get in. In Christ, it, it provides nothing. In Christ, then he says that there's neither male nor female. Now, this is the one where, in our culture, man, in our, in our place where we live, this is so radically taken out of context. I, I even read something recently. It was, it's, it's actually funny because this helped my, helped my preparation for this because I was studying this several weeks ago as we saw, a, 
I, I, don't, I, I guess at some level, a prominent pastor with a conservative theology come out and write on his blog that this simply means that all of the male-female distinctions are gone. Do you know how dangerous that is? I mean, if there's no difference between a man and a woman, I mean, really, come on. If there's no difference, if, if there's no distinction, then we might as well throw books away like men are from Mars and women are from Venus. All of that learning and all of that understanding is out the window. If there's no difference, then it's okay for me to walk up and give a full-on French kiss to any man sitting in this room. If there's no difference, it's not going to happen. <laughs> because I believe there's a difference. Yeah, thank the Lord. But see, what Paul is dealing with is he's dealing with a culture in which men are exalted and women are belittled. The truth is, is that the people that Paul was writing to, and actually you can see this in, in uh, developing countries all around the world and in Muslim traditions and things like that, you can go in and you can see women who are belittled or held at a lower standing in culture or in society because of their gender. I don't know that you'd ever hear anybody say this, but they're truly treated more as property or less valuable than a man. Here's the beauty of Christianity. In Christ, gender has no advantage. You see, because in Christ, in, in fact, Christianity has raised a woman to where she belongs. And we're the ones called chauvinists because we're following biblical traditions to have a male eldership. But Christianity lifts women to where they belong because women, along with men, are created in the image of God. And that by itself should tell you that they hold great value. They hold great value. It, it, this passage is simply speaking about the fact that in these places, and there's so many that could be added. Luther talks about so many could be added as he commented on this passage. That in Christ, these, these cultural, socioeconomic divisions and distinctions hold no advantage. See, the gospel has leveled the playing field. The gospel has made it even across the board. We are all unworthy. That's why we call it grace. You see, we don't deserve any of it. But everyone that stands and says that they trust in Christ and believe in Christ, they have received God's grace and are equally valuable before God. Paul is not comment, commenting on role or function, but identity. See, it's not Paul's intent to tell men that their role is now to have babies. It's physically impossible. And if it happens in our church, we're having babies. I don't think there's a father that's going to do the work here. I just don't think it's going to happen. But if it's in Paul's intent to tell to tell men that now they're going to have babies and that they're going to nurse those babies until they can begin eating real food, then I'm sorry, but our children are going to be left hungry. It's not going to happen. It's physically impossible. He's not commenting on role or function. In Christ, we do have different roles. We do have different functions. This verse isn't denying that. But he's saying that while we may have different lineages, 
and we may fit in different socioeconomic categories and, and that we may have different genders. We have a common identity. See, the thing is, is that in Christ, I didn't quit being Caucasian. I still can't jump, I still can't dance, and I still can't rap. But you know what? I love my brothers who can. Specifically because I can't. I mean, if, if we all looked like we do, this would be a dull world. If everybody became a cookie-cutter cookie version of me, that, that, there's, I'm telling you, we're in trouble. There's problems that we don't want to deal with. In Christ, though, I, I didn't suddenly quit needing money or didn't suddenly start just seeing money pour out of heaven. And, and I didn't suddenly, all of a sudden, not need a job or not want to work. It, it didn't happen that way. The truth is that there are Christian bosses and there are Christian employees. And thank God there are because we need both. I don't care what form of economic culture you live in or what, what economic system you live under. If you don't have people running businesses and working at businesses, it doesn't work. You can be a boss all day long, but you're not going to produce much without employees. And you can be employees all day long, even some of the best employees. You're not going to be able to see that business go very far without somebody driving the boat. It's got to happen. We need both. It's just the, the way our world works. But in Christ, I didn't suddenly become sexless. I am a man. I have an Adam's apple. I, I will prove it to you. It's underneath my chin, but it's there. I have a deep voice, and, and that's okay. I, I probably, yeah, I think I can say this. I think I'm stronger in my upper body than any girl I've ever met. And if you want to arm wrestle later, we'll figure it out. I think I can beat you. You might be able to do more sit-ups than I can, but I can beat you in the upper body. I'm not driven so much by emotion, but more by ration and logic. I am from Mars, and my wife is from Venus. And I thank God for that. Because I love, I don't know, Venetians? I don't know. <laughs> what do you call that? I just made that one up, so just roll with it. And we're very different. But not just different personalities, and not, not, just, not just different in our parts, but we have different roles. I saw this exemplified in my son's lives. I am not as compassionate and comfortable as you might imagine. When they hurt and they struggle and they have pain, I'm like, suck it up, sissy. I mean, that's really kind of our motto. Suck it up. Deal with it. Let's go. And she's loving and compassionate and concerned. I, I, I thank God for that. I, I'm ecstatic about that because without her, my boys would be left wanting. But because of her, they can experience a tenderness that they'd never have with me. We're, we're different. And I thank God for that. I, I am so grateful for that. In fact, I would celebrate that. I have a different role in our family than she does. But see, the value is not placed on the role. The value is not placed on the position. The real value comes in the identity. And truly, the reasons we struggle with verses like this is because we have an identity crisis. 
We so desperately want to be somebody we want to be rather than God, who God created us to be. And see, Paul, that's really what he's building. That's really what he's pushing for. In Christ, we are one in identity, saved by one God because of the life, death, and resurrection of his one son, Jesus Christ. And it's applied to us by his one spirit. And we are saved into one family by one faith through one baptism. And we're not talking about baptism in such that it's water baptism. It's about the Holy Spirit coming and and regenerating you and pouring himself all over you. And in that, we become one with one another. And truly, we become family. And now my ties to you and to your brothers and sisters in Christ, our our ties together now are one of family and truly stronger and deeper, although we don't always recognize it, than any blood relation. Many of my family members I won't spend eternity with, but every believer in the room will be with me forever. You are my brothers and sisters, and I thank God for that. That's our identity. He goes on to illustrate this further. Let's keep going. We, we, we got a little ways to go still. He, he continues to illustrate it and continues to build on it, continues to demonstrate how this new identity kind of works itself out. He says, I mean, in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here's the deal. Identity, our identity, provides for us a right to an inheritance. It provides for us a birthright, but this blessing or this, this, this goodness doesn't come until the Father brings it to pass. Under the law, we were under a guardian. He said that in chapter 3. The law becomes a guardian. It, it's one of, of, of this, of this person ruling over a child. In fact, in Paul's culture, it was the responsibility of the father to look at his son and say, you're now a man. You've matured. Here's your birthright. It is that kind of thing. This, this was in Jewish and, and, and Roman cultures alike. It was something that was very common. But until the time had occurred, until the father said it was time, until the, the, the child had reached a certain age until the, the celebration had happened. In many cases, especially in rich families, parents didn't necessarily spend all their time with their kids. Especially rich parents, they would leave them to guardians and trustees. This, this, this word in the Greek really refers to managers and stewards. Someone who would watch over their child and teach them and, and challenge them to grow up in a way that would please the father. We see this today, like in our daycares. You know, here there's a lot of a lot of families. I've I've used them in the past that use daycares. I go in, I pay the money. That daycare works for me. And if they do something with my kid I don't like, they answer to me. But I leave my child and I walk away and I say, "You have authority over my child." The truth is, is that the child is related to the customer, and that by all rights should be telling the daycare, how he wants to be ruled and how he wants to... I don't want that for lunch. I I, I don't want peanut butter and jelly. I want ham and cheese. 
I don't want to play now. I want to take my nap now, and I want to go out and play later. By all rights, because the child's related to the customer, in some way he should feel okay to stand up and say, hey, you're working for my family. But that's not the way it works, is it? We leave our children in daycares under the authority of someone else. In our kids' department, those of you that have kids that have gone back, you have, you have without something in writing necessarily, but you have allowed us to have authority over your child because we're teaching them about Jesus. We're teaching them about, the, uh, about what a life in Christ is like. We're, we're giving them a gospel-centered message geared towards their age. You've given us authority over your child. We're not going to let your child come in and say, this is the way we expect you to run Sunday school. Not going to happen. Sorry. And I think Melissa would have something to say about that. That's the truth, but, th but that's what happens. That's, and that, so you can kind of see that in our day and age. But here's the reality of it. The authority comes not because of the guardian's connection to the son. The guardian gains his authority, is granted his authority because of his relationship to the father. You see, the law didn't simply become authoritative over people simply because people had to follow some rule. But because God said, this is the way it is. And so the law, the rules of life, that you think of it in terms of the Ten Commandments. We're not allowed to have gods before God because he said this is the way it is. We're not allowed to, to, um, to decide that, hey, you know, today I think it's okay to kill people. Because God said it's not. And so the law gains authority because it's connection to God. However, however... In our vast wisdom, in our vast knowledge, in our grand perspective, we don't listen to the law. We don't look at his rules. We don't look at his, his, his way to live. We decide to go our own way. Most clearly demonstrated in the Garden of Eden. As they were really only given just a couple of commands, only one command were they given not to do something. And they rebelled and they went their own direction and they decided that they were going to do their own thing. In essence, they were saying, we are going to be our own gods. And immediately, a crisis of identity occurred. And all of the, all of the problems and all of the struggles and all of the issues that come from us not recognizing our true identity fell in on them. And you know what? It was passed down to you and to me. Identity, it provides the right of inheritance, but the Father brings it to pass. The truth is, is that that if we can get this right, if we, if we can begin to see this, if we can begin to, to make this click in our minds, if, if we can make this transition in our thought and solve so many issues. Truly, I, I'm, I'm going to share this with you. I, I wasn't sure if I would or not, but, but I think it's, it's pertinent. I told you a, a little bit ago, I, I, have a fam I have family members that live in a homosexual lifestyle. In fact, I have a sister that is really, she's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. She'll give you the shirt off her back, but she is gay. And she wants everybody to accept her in her gayness. And I'm not, I mean, I know I'm saying that in a way. I'm not trying to make fun. That's just the reality of who she is. 
But what she's begun to do is see, she has lost sight of her identity. She's begun to identify with her sin rather than the creator who put her in place. In fact, she would tell you as she tries to convince you that homosexuality is not sinful, and she would try to convince you as, as she tries to demonstrate to you, to you that she should have all the rights of every other human being as a homosexual person. And honestly, in America, I, that, that's not what I'm going to argue over. And she's going to stand and she's going to tell you as a gay person that God made her that way and that he loves her just like that. And he doesn't ask her to change and doesn't desire anything of her and you must just accept her just as she is. And in one statement, in one instant, she's right. But God didn't save us to leave us in our sin. He didn't, he, he didn't save us to leave us identifying ourselves as sinners. He saved us and he called us sons. He called us children. It, it's a new identity. It's something totally new that wells up inside of us. It's, it's something that becomes foundational in every instant and in every area of our life. In, in our relationships with other people, in our work, in, in, our, in, in the ways that we use our money, in, in the ways that we spend our time. This issue of identity is foundational. And I look at my sister and I, it kills me. Because she can't recognize herself as anything but a gay woman living in America. And she has come to a place where she really wants nothing to do with a God who gave her this physical life. She wants nothing to do with the Christ who stepped down into it so that she could have the opportunity of salvation. She'd much rather be identified as that gay woman. That's an identity crisis. And the truth is, the truth is that while yours might not be so socially and, 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 and uh, uh, especially religiously unacceptable, the truth is you have those identity crises too also. We all struggle with this issue of identity. And honestly, as Paul's writing to these people, they do too. You see, they looked at the law. They looked at their race. They looked at their religion. They looked at that for their identity. But the law was never intended to be their source of identity. The law was never intended to be the point at which they said, this is who we are because we have this law. This is who we are because we have this lineage. The law was never intended to be their source of identity. But until the right time came, he says they were to live under its authority. And as Paul's talking about that, what he's really referring to is the moment that Jesus Christ would come into the world and that this faith that had been being proclaimed from since the fall would become a reality. You see, before Christ, looking forward to Christ, they were under this authority and they were waiting for the one and they looked for it and they longed for it. And they lived under the authority of this law. It was a guardian to them. It revealed their sin to them. It showed them their desperate need of their Messiah. It demonstrated to them how desperately insufficient they were. 
and they were to live under its authority and follow its commands. But when Christ came, we find hope. Let's just keep reading verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, when all the time was right, when everything was set in place and all the work that God needed to get done, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This idea, God sent forth his son, it, it demonstrates to us that there was an existence beforehand. He didn't create him, he didn't make him, he sent him forward. There was an existence beforehand. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. This doesn't mean that this, this isn't proof of the virgin birth. That's not what Paul's arguing for here. It's not, as some people would say, proof against the virgin birth because he doesn't call her a virgin. He just says born of woman. What this is proof of is the incarnation. Jesus put on flesh. He became a man. Born of a woman under the law. When Jesus was born, he came in a time that the authority of the law still stood. And he's the only man that has ever lived and obeyed every law, every moment, every second of every day. Never once did he sin. He was born under the law and then he fulfills the law and it goes on to say, <clears throat> born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, here's the, here's the distinct difference between a, an earthly parent adopting an earthly child and our heavenly father adopting us as sons because this is the truth. It's only when we recognize our identity as sons that things fall into place. As we adopt children here on earth, because we live in a fallen, broken world, it comes with struggles, just like having your own children comes with struggles. But the reality is, is that we recognize our adoption, and as we own this identity, everything else begins to fall into place. You see, this is our crisis. We want to identify with so many other things. But in Christ through faith in Christ, we have been adopted as sons. We are no longer sinners and, and, and worms and dirt and unworthy. We are children of God. Stand up and walk in that. And praise God for it. It's not wrong for me to remember what I came from. It's not wrong for me to think back about who I was, but I can no longer live like that because that is not who I am today. And Paul proved this point in his faith as he said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He was a new man. I am a new man. And if you are in Christ, you are new. Your identity is founded in him. It's built upon his cross and secured by his life. You are adopted as his children. You are his sons. He goes on, he says, to, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. What was ruled and, and had authority 
and, and it enslaved people and it, it caused them to be under a curse. The law enslaved people under a curse, but there's hope because Christ came and, and allowed for people to move from under the curse and no longer be called slave, but be called son. But hear this. As special as you might feel sitting in this moment being called a son of God, being called a child of God, and don't hear me saying it's not special, it is precious. The beauty of sonship rests not in who we are, but in who our Father is. The hero of this story is not you becoming a son and recognizing first your identity by yourself. It's so recognizing your identity in relation to God. The God who created, the God who spoke things into existence out of nothing. The God who's sovereign and holds it all together. The God who knew you before you were born. The God who called you by His grace and showed you the truth of His Son, Jesus Christ. That God is your Father. You see, I'm, I, I try very hard. I try very hard to be a good father. I, I want so desperately for my kids to grow up under a father who demonstrates his love and care for them. Not just in words, not just in empty words. You know, I, I look at my children and I love them by, by teaching them, by providing for them, by protecting them, by even disciplining them. I love them by, by looking at things that they want and desire and making sure that they get it and giving them gifts that they enjoy, not simply because it makes me feel good, but because it makes them feel good. But as hard as I try, as good as I want to be, as good an example as I want to set, as, 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 as strong and powerful as I think I can be and as much control as I think I can have, it doesn't compare at all to the Father that we have in God. See, it's great being called a son of God. Not just because it sounds cool, but because he's truly God and can do all that he says he's going to do and will do all that he says he's going to do and has made promises over and over and over that he will fulfill. And he's made them to his children. There's no one else in the world that enjoys this truth but his children. See, this, this, this letter, this, this passage is not written to the world. Christians, it's written to you and to me. God is our Father. And it's in that identity that I would encourage you to live. And as his son, he puts our, his spirit in us, crying, Abba, Father. It's not just that he's a friend, and he's certainly not just a master. Certainly we have to obey him. Certainly we can know him. He's our daddy. He, he puts his spirit in us that says, Abba, Father. That, that's simply baby talk. It's daddy. As long as we're separated from him, we live day to day. As, as, as long as we have some other foundation for our identity, we will live day to day in this crisis. Christian, I call you. I plead with you. I beg of you to build your identity in Christ with God as your Father. That is the beginning. That, 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 that's the first step. 
Uh, maybe, maybe today you're thinking, you know, I've never done that. I've never trusted Christ. I don't know what it means to trust Christ. I, I, don't, I don't know what you're saying. I, I don't understand those words. Maybe today you're here and you're hearing these words and you say, I want so desperately to be a child. What does that mean? How does it happen? What do I do? Hear the gospel. Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins. And you were enslaved to that sin and you were finding identity in it. And he says, now trust in me. He did the work so that you could enjoy the blessing. Trust him and him alone for your sonship and for your identity. Maybe today I, I, I think specifically about the Christians in the room. And, I, you know, I don't know every one of your, your struggles. And I, I mean, there's many people here today. I, I'm not even sure of all that you do beyond what you do here in church. But Christians, think of this. Think of this. Anything you build your identity, any, anything that gives you satisfaction and, and, and builds your self-esteem and hope more than what you can find in your Savior Jesus Christ and your Father God. It's become an idol and I call you to repent of it. Turn from it. Walk away from it. Run from it. Listen to the story. Listen to the story of the wayward son who wanted his inheritance and he runs off and he spends his inheritance and he gets to the end of it and all the money's gone and, 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 and the illusion has lifted and he's sitting in a pig pen in mud and dirt and filth. And he looks around and he's eating the trash and the garbage that the pigs are eating. And he recognizes that it was empty and it left him wanting. And his best plan, the only thing he can come up with is to go back to his father's house and live as a servant in his father's house. And you know the story. You know, he's got this plan. He's devised this plan and he runs off and he runs and, and it begins to travel back to his father's house. But you know the story. Before he gets there, the father sees him and runs to meet him. And he begins to lay out this plan. Hey, Dad, Dad, I screwed up. Just let me live as a servant. And before he can even get the words out of his mouth, his father is kissing him on the cheek and putting a ring on his finger and a cloak on his back and commanding his servants to go and kill the fattened calf because they're going to have a feast. Christian, hear this call. Come back to this generous and, and, and prodigal God. Come back to this Father who loves you. Everything else is an illusion and will leave you wanting. And it will leave you empty. And it will cause you crisis. Your Father God loves you and He is watching for you. Come back. Come back, wayward children, wayward sons and wayward daughters. I've seen this in lives in our church this year. It is so exciting. As people recognize that they're giving their lives to something that, that, that really leads to their own selfish desires and their own selfish perspectives. And they see that God is calling them and He shifts their focus. I've seen that and it's worth celebrating. Oh man, it's exciting to see God call His children and meet them as they run to Him. And not treat them as slaves, but treat them as sons. Wayward Christian, come back. I don't know. I, I, I don't know exactly the things you're experiencing, but I can promise you this. If your identity is found in anything other than Christ and, their, and your Father God, you will not know rest and you will not know peace. Come back. Let's pray.
God, you are good. You are gracious. I thank you for the gift of sonship. I thank you for, for looking at us. And in spite of our fallenness, in spite of our, uh, of our flaws and our failures, you have called us your children. And you have continued to work in us and you've continued to put on us and bestow on us your blessings. I pray in this moment, God, that through your one spirit, you would speak to the hearts of your children and that you would show them all the things that they long for and all the things that they desire more than you that they could repent of them and walk away from them. And I ask of you, Father, if there's one here today that's your child and doesn't even recognize it yet, that you would reveal your son to them in this moment. And that you would call them out of slavery and into sonship. We thank you. We love you. It's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.